And welcome in to another edition of Nebraska Gems. My guest today, well, he really needs no introduction, especially here in the state of Nebraska, but I'm going to do my best to get this right because I'm truly honored, chosen to take some time to sit down with us today. Nebraska's only astronaut. He spent 167 days in space. He's done 38 hours worth of spacewalk. He spent 152 days aboard the International Space Station. And currently, he is back home and he is in charge of one of my favorite places to visit in all of this state, the SAC Museum. I am joined, of course, this morning by Mr. Clayton Anderson. Uh, Clayton, thank you so much for doing this this morning. How are you? You I'm fine, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's just an absolute thrill to have you on here on Nebraska Gems. I mentioned some of the stuff already. We know Clayton Anderson, the astronaut. Uh, we know Clayton Anderson, the author. We know Clayton Anderson, the CEO of SAC. Who was Clayton Anderson, the kid? What What was it like in Ashland, Nebraska? <laughs> well, uh, to the best of my memory, <laughs> Ashland was about 1,800 people when I was a kid. I know that I graduated as a senior from Ashland Greenwood High School with 73 students in our class. Sounds familiar. Um, as a young kid, as a little kid, I was, we were outside all the time, right? You, you had, you know, there was no internet, no computers. Yeah. Um, you know, the TV had <clears throat> three channels and, and uh, most of the time, nothing was on the TV worth watching until late in the evening, right at the six o'clock news and the, and the evening hours. Exactly. Yes, sir. And it was set for family time, right? We watched the, right. the, the Walt Disney hour when Daniel Boone and we watched uh, Batman and Robin. I remember that was pretty cool. But uh, as a kid, we played in the neighborhood. So the wild kids, uh, Tom Wild and Dennis Wild and Dan Wild and Brad Beckman and, and uh, my brother Kirby and I, we were always outside. And, and my brother and I were very athletic. And so sports was a big deal. You know, we'd listen with dad on the weekends to the Husker games with the radio, right? Because they were never on TV unless it was a big Oklahoma game on Thanksgiving or something. So we'd sit <clears throat> around my dad's recliner and he'd have the radio going and we'd listen to Lyle Bremser. And then my brother and I were so fired up after Nebraska kicked the crap out of somebody. that <laughs> We'd grab our football and we'd run out on the Euclid street, uh, which finally got paved. We would throw and kick the football for hours after that, or, if it was baseball season, we were on the side of our house there on, at 1518 Euclid Street, and my brother had his catcher's mitt, and I grabbed my glove, and I would pitch to my brother. Uh, we did crazy things like we played Batman and Robin, and I was always Batman. I was the oldest, and my brother would put on a yellow towel around his neck, and I'd have a blue towel just like Batman and Robin, and we'd climb up the apple tree onto the garage, and then we'd jump off the garage. <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, to get the villains. Right. And the, the other thing we did that people might find strange is that we would open the sewers covers of Ashland and we'd drop skateboards down into the uh, sewer system. And we would, oh. our bellies, we would ride the skateboards through the sewer pipes. <laughs> wow. That's a yeah. new one. That's a yeah. new one. I, I grew up in a town of about 120 people. I don't, I don't even know where the sewer covers were, but uh, <laughs> wow, that, that, that's really cool. So just a normal Nebraska kid, it sounds like. Sounds like something that a lot of us can relate to. When did Clayton Anderson decide, you know, I, I think I really want to be an astronaut. Not like just, oh, it'd be cool as a kid to play astronaut. I, I think I'm going to be an astronaut. It's not well, easy. <clears throat> uh, true, it's not easy. I would say that answer has 
or that question has three answers. Okay. The first answer, I was nine years old in 1968 when the Apollo 8 astronauts went behind the moon for the first time. Yes, and sir. my mom and dad got my brother and sister and I out of bed near midnight on Christmas Eve to watch that, right? And that was oh. the first time I felt the pull that I can remember to become an astronaut, right? I really want to do that. Well, then my mother would tell me that we discussed it when I was six years old. We would discuss on a frequent basis that one day I would be an astronaut. And I don't remember that piece. Wow. But the third, the third answer is when the realization hit that maybe I could actually do it. Uh, and that occurred at Hastings College my senior year when the career guidance counselor at Hastings, Gary Musgrave, uh, was pheasant hunting with a fella who graduated from Hastings in 1961. His name was Maynard Huntley. And Maynard worked for the NASA at the Johnson Space Center on the second floor, building 30. And Maynard would come to Nebraska every fall to hunt pheasants. Well, they're tromping through the cornfields with their shotguns ready to pounce on a bird. And they discussed who who does what, right? You work for NASA? Oh, yeah. Well, we have a kid here. He's really interested in NASA. Oh, he is? Does he know we have an internship program for the summer? Oh, I don't think he does. Well, would you like me to send him some information? Oh, I bet he would. And so all that sure. occurred. And it would result in me applying to be a, for a summer intern job at the Johnson Space Center in 1981. And 40 of us were selected from 480 applicants. So wow. that was the time I actually came to Houston. I had an apartment. I went to work. I made an appointment uh, with the man who was in charge at that time of astronaut selection. And his name was uh, Bud Ream, H.R. Bud Ream was his name. <laughs> okay. And I sat down with him, you know, and I said, I, I really want to be an astronaut someday. What does it take? What do I need to do? And he kind of, he was very good. He, he told me the requirements and said how difficult it is. But at that point, as a young engineer at NASA, I said, you know, maybe I can do this. It'll take a lot of work. It'll be, I'll have to be lucky, but maybe I can. And so when I got the full-time job there a couple of years later, I began to, to see the reality was slim to none. And that if I continued to be a good engineer, I would at least have a solid career at a place working for NASA that I really loved. If I became an astronaut, Hey, that's frosting on the cake, but I was in a happy place. <laughs> 14 different attempts, if, if, I, if I read that correctly, uh, before you actually were chosen as an astronaut. Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't it generally speaking to become an astronaut, you, you generally come out of the military as a pilot? Is, is that true or is that not true? It was true early in the program, uh, in the Mercury Gemini Apollo time frame. Well, mostly Mercury and Gemini. Everyone was a test pilot. Everyone was a fighter pilot. Everyone had that capability because they thought this was so new and so dangerous. They had to have that. As we moved toward Apollo and they brought in a couple geology people to study, help them figure out how to study the lunar surface and the rocks and things. We would go into the shuttle program though. And that's where it really changed where they brought in more scientists less pilots, less military. But now, okay. as we head back to the moon and the Artemis program, I think they're kind of going back to more military guys. And this is Clay's opinion, not anyone okay. else's. I don't have data. But I think it's twofold. I think that 
test pilots bring to the table, the understanding of how you test something, what the program uh, needs to work out all the kinks. And that's a good thing. But the other piece of this is I think someone's looking ahead and saying, hey, we have the Space Force now and we have China and we have Russia and they're still bad boys. And we need to be ready and have a military, more military astronauts, I think, maybe lens down the road to the Space Force taking some of these guys after they fly maybe for NASA once or twice. And now they can go be uh, Space Force folks. So, right. But again, that's just Clay speculating. So sure. Well, if you wouldn't mind, while we're on the topic, can you take me back to 1998 then when uh, when the answer was finally yes? What you said, I think it was 14 tries of, of being told no. Four, a lot of people after 14 times are, would not keep applying. Well, you know, the N on the helmet stands for knowledge, right? There you go, buddy. <laughs> so, you know, maybe I wasn't the smartest guy around, but, um, it, you know, my 15... 15th try is when I got picked. And on the 13th try, uh, I was ready to give up. Actually, my wife and I had flown to Seattle to visit uh, the Rakes, Jeff Rakes family, which is uh, a great name in Ashland history as well. Um, And our trip there was for me to kind of hopefully see if Boeing was hiring or would look at me. But it turns out that didn't go very well for whatever reasons, I don't remember. But when I came back from that trip, that was when I got the first phone call for an interview. So as a interviewer inter- or interviewee in the 13th year, my fire got lit again. And, sure. and and then it was easy to just apply a couple more times and hope that I would get picked. Uh, being interviewed in group five in year 13 uh, did not bode well, right? The, the further into the interview group, groups you are, the less your chances. But then, oh, two years, okay. So, so if you're in, I was in group five, which meant uh-huh. they had four more groups of highly qualified people ahead of me. Okay, so, okay. You know, maybe, maybe not. Mostly, maybe not. But then, the, in two years, the next two years, when they uh, interviewed again, and actually, we're going to hire astronauts again. Uh, I moved into group one, uh-huh. and to move into group one was a good sign, obviously, and and I would be selected that year. So those 15 years uh, in reality, I'm smart enough to know that you have to accomplish something to put on yeah. your resume. Yeah. And as a young engineer at NASA, I hadn't really done anything, but I had moved, began to move up the ranks and eventually I moved into management. And that was probably for my career path, a good thing for my astronaut path, not a good thing until oh. I got high enough in management where people that pick astronauts started to see me and they started to see what I brought to the table. They saw my work ethic. They saw my ability to work as a team. They saw my leadership skills, right? All those things helped me eventually because when I walked into that interview room in in year 15, I knew all the players at the table uh, for the most part. And Actually, I knew the astronaut players less than I knew the management players that were around the room. And that was an advantage for me, I think, that, you know, I did my interview. But then when they start talking about you, all those people that were management people could speak to my skill set and help convince the astronauts that, yeah, this guy would be a good one. So Um, so before we we go into space, how about Clayton Anderson, the college basketball official? (laughs) Well, as I said before, I was an athlete 
I've been an athlete my entire life, although I'm slowing down now. But basketball was my favorite sport. I don't know that it was my best sport. I'm, I'm not sure. My dad always thought I would be a uh, was a better bat baseball player than anything. But right. back then you didn't have high school baseball and it was hard yeah. to do college baseball. So I loved basketball. And when I got to graduate school at Iowa State, I decided I wanted to continue playing. I was playing at Iowa State on every day after school or after my classes, I would go to state gym and they had six courts and hundreds of guys playing hoops. And, and I just loved that. And I would play for two, two and a half hours and I would shower and go eat. But uh, I decided at that point I wanted to try to be a, a high school basketball official. So I, I joined the Iowa Association. And the only thing I did that whole year was I refed a tournament uh, at Iowa State on one weekend. Uh, I sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked it. I really liked it. So then yeah. I went to Texas. And I reached out and found those folks. And I actually joined there. And then I became an official. And when you join to be an official in Texas, they'll give you a thousand games if you take them because really? there's so, so many schools, junior high, they start you at the junior high level. And I was working four five, six nights a week, wow. but I didn't have any responsibilities beside my job at NASA. So I worked and I worked and I trained and I went to classes that they had and I learned from the veterans and I went to start going to referee camps. And eventually I would become one of Houston's top high school basketball officials. And then I looked to go into the college ranks and I got accepted into the college ranks. I don't remember what year, uh, but then my goal became from junior college and small college NAIA type games. I wanted to work the big time. I wanted to be a division right. one official. Um, so then it changes, the philosophy changes and you start to go to camps around the country so you can be seen by the supervisors of the WAC and of the SEC and of the Big okay. A, Big 12. Okay, yeah, sure. That makes sense. So now I'm doing that, and I got noticed, um, and I was hired for at the Southland Conference, which is a the um, conference that still exists, and it's down in the lower part of the 48 states. But uh, I worked there one year. I had three games, so I'm the only astronaut ever to referee a men's division one college basketball game. I refereed wow. three and then we all got fired. <laughs> <laughs> what? Because <laughs> the, the way it works is that the supervisor of all the officials for that conference is the hirer of, of new referees. Well, the commissioner, the supervisor got fired. So once he got fired, they got rid of all his people and oh. they brought in a new guy. And so then I had to go back to square one and, and try to do it again. And I would end up in the Western Athletic Conference camp. Uh, and I had a good showing there, but I didn't get hired. So the year I became an astronaut, I was headed back in July to Albuquerque to work the WAC camp again. And I thought, hey, I got a shot this time because not only am I a decent referee, I'm a brand new astronaut. And what conference would not want a referee astronaut on their roster, right? Right, right. So I'm thinking I'm pretty confident going in until I played in a softball game and tore the ACL on my left knee oh. <laughs> right before. Wow. And, and it was right after I got the phone call. So I got called to be an astronaut and I'm all excited, right? And I'm playing in a softball game at Johnson Space Center and tear my ACL. And now it's like, oh, oh my God, I can't go to the WAC camp and I may not even be able to be an astronaut. So. Fortunately, the astronaut part, I called the the guy who took 
this HR Bud Ream we talked about before, the yeah. gentleman mm -hmm. that took his place eventually, I called him up and I said, hey, you know, are you going to kick me out? And he goes, nah. He says, once you're in, you're you're in unless you really screw up. <laughs> so <laughs> good. Um, okay. So I, I don't know if there's any way you can describe this to anybody. Man, what is it like to get in that vehicle and take off from Earth and know that your destination is outer space? That has got to be one of the coolest things anyone could ever do. I would agree. <laughs> um, yeah. It's the first time I had some anxiety. I wasn't scared, but I had anxiety. And the anxiety comes from, uh, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to make yeah. a mistake. We're trained very well, but I was a sack of potatoes in, in the respect that I was trained as a space station astronaut. So I was going to be a, basically a passenger on the shuttle. Um, and plus, I got moved to the STS-117 crew at the last minute. So the 118 crew I was training with to fly in August of 2007, that's where I spent most of my time, right? We had a patch. We had a crew. I was meeting with them. We sat in the same office. And then NASA says, oh, Clay, we got to move you up. So I never changed offices, right? They had to alter their patch on 117 to put my name at the bottom. Uh, it, it was It was chaos for my family because we'd set up uh receptions and parties and stuff based on an august launch with 118 and now we're moved to june and 117 and then these guys i only trained with them one time i had one eight hour sim with the 118 crew or the 117 wow. crew and you know i would ask what can i do how can i help i got it i got it nah i got it clay i got it it's okay i got it right because these are six type a alpha males right. who who didn't need anyone to help them. Sure. So that first sim, the eight hour sim where we're pretending we're in space and converting the shuttle to from the rocket launcher to the science lab. Uh, all I did was prepare food for them. <laughs> really? I, put, I put water in their strawberries to rehydrate them. I made them macaroni and cheese and, and broccoli and rice casserole. Right. And, and I would wow. ferry drinks up the ladder in the simulator to them. So they had <laughs> some to drink. So, you know, it was like, welcome to space. So, wow. So the, the day I'm on the shuttle and I'm actually sitting on the mid deck, I am a sack of potatoes. Uh, I don't have many responsibilities, but I have a few. Uh, I'm think all I'm thinking about is those responsibilities and not making a mistake. I do not want to be the guy that makes a mistake and causes hiccups throughout the whole uh, scenario. And it turns out that during launch, I didn't get sick. I didn't get spaceflight adaptation syndrome they call it sas i wasn't yeah. puking my brains out like half the other crew actually more than half and so, really? I was so that, it's fairly common then yes i mean even even in the military fighter pilot guys they still get sick it, it, there's really? no there's no correlation you you can't defeat it now when you don't sit in the flight deck where you're going to be potentially operating the shuttle <clears throat> you can't take medication up there so i could take medication so they have a combo pill called Fendex, which is Fenergan and Dextra something. I yeah. can't remember. But I took that pill and that helped me from getting sick. So now I'm a I'm a viable worker. I'm floating around, flying around, working, fixing stuff while they're floating down with looking green and their hair's all greasy and they're got a bag near their face and, and I'm working. 
And so now my anxiety is gone because I'm actually contributing positively sure. to what's going on. And, and the more you do that as a first timer, the higher, the faster and higher your confidence level rises. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this. In fact, my partner uh, at Nebraska Gems, Tom Stevens, insisted that I lead with this question. But <laughs> did you ever drink Tang in space? <laughs> well, the, the true answer is yes, but we would never call it Tang because we cannot endorse anything. Oh, really? Right. So Tang comes in many flavors in space. So my favorite was peach uh, apricot. Um, we had grape, we had orange, we had, uh, uh, grape with artificial sweetener, um, <laughs> which is kind of nasty cause it's that saccharine stuff, I think. But yeah, we have Tang, but we can't call it Tang and we have M&Ms, but we have to call them candy coated chocolates or candy coated chocolates with peanuts. Oh, uh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. You can't endorse anything. You can't endorse an individual. So like when I was in the underwater program in Key Largo, called Nemo, we were writing journals and, and for NASA to post on their website. And my first journal entry was, I love Enya, because I do. And I mean, think about this, you're in a habitat 65 feet below the surface of the ocean, and you're looking out a window watching sharks and barracudas and turtles. Oh, that's so cool. And, and now you got Enya going <laughs> in your head, right? Playing her, right. that Caribbean song she has. I mean, it was perfect. So I write this one page journal, it's called I Love Enya and, you know, talks about her music and watching these sharks and stuff. And of course, NASA puts the kibosh on all of it, says you can't endorse Enya, right? Astronauts wow. can't endorse anyone or anything. So those of you uh, maybe under 35 years old, if you didn't understand the question, um, look it up. <laughs> so the difference between a shuttle mission and the International Space Station. Obviously, one is moving and one isn't technically. Uh, well, that's probably not even true. You spent 152 days aboard the International Space Station. That's incredible. Yeah, the, the, they're both space vehicles. And yeah. once they get to orbit, living in a space vehicle is the same except for the size. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't get to the space station vehicle without getting on a shuttle-type vehicle. Right. Um, and so that was one of the cool things that as a young engineer, I worked on shuttle trajectory work and shuttle work as a rendezvous vehicle and docking vehicle to the station. So the fact that I got to fly and live and work on both of them in my career and work on them as an engineer was pretty cool. The but the, the two of them are basically in the same orbit. A shuttle mission can be anywhere from four days to 11 days depending mm -hmm. on what their objectives are. But once you get to the station, you're considered long duration. And long duration is different. It's not just working in space, it's living and working in space. Yeah. And, and that's the big distinction. It, we have to figure out how humans can live for long periods of time on the moon, on Mars, traveling through deep space. And that's what the ultimate goal is, is to figure out how we adapt, how we can adapt, what we can do to make us adapt more effectively to all those scenarios, right? In the shuttle days, it would just say, hey, let's go up, let's do some work and we're coming home. So that short period was exactly that. And, and it's easier to adapt to anything for a short period of time, right? Right. If, <clears throat> if you're going to go to Antarctica, right, you can hang in Antarctica for three or four days. But if somebody tells you you got to live there for eight months, it's that's a whole different story. Sure. During your time in NASA, I, I read an article 
you were you served as something called a family escort mm-hmm. for the Columbia crew. If I if I understood that correctly, what's a family escort, and what what was that like? For every mission, every shuttle mission, uh, the commander picks two to three, maybe four, sometimes astronauts to support his crew's families. For, for launch preparation, mission preparation, and landing. Um, Rick Husband was the commander. Uh, I sat at my desk one day, and he gives me a call, and I'm thinking, Rick Husband's calling me? And uh, when I picked up the phone, and I started chatting with him, and he's a, he was a great man. If You know, if you look at astronauts, or if I looked at astronauts, and I said, who are the great astronauts? That's Rick Husband is right at the top of my list. And Many of his crew members were at the top of my list. Um, you know, his yeah. Mike Anderson from who was at Creighton at school for a while and flew right. out of Offutt, and Laurel Clark and Elon Ramon from Israel and uh, Dave Brown um, and and Willie McCool. The, those guys were incredible. Um, so the fact that he was calling me and said, "Hey Clay, we want you to be a family escort," I'm thinking, "What? Really?" Wow. And I and I'd never been one. I was only a family escort once. Oftentimes, astronauts, there are some astronauts that get picked multiple times to be family escorts. Uh, I'm not sure why, but that he was the first to ask, and that was the only time I got to do it. So I said yes, of course. Um, there's no training, really. There's a, book, a manual you're supposed to read, but there's no training. And there were four of us. There would be four of us for launch and three for uh, landing. And the four for launch was due in part to the fact that Elon Ramon from Israel was launching with 107. And given that he was launching with 107, uh, there was a security concern, a big security concern, because he was the first Israeli astronaut. Oh, so when we got to the Cape and we flew on T-38s, the first thing we did was we had to go to a big meeting and we met our FBI agents. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and so each astronaut family escort had an FBI agent. And so okay. we all had a vehicle to take. And I had um, Dave Brown's brother. I had Willie McCool's wife. And I had Casey Chavla's husband. Those were my three uh, people. Mm-hmm. And we had a vehicle to transport them around to the various places we needed to go. But then we also had an FBI agent who had their own vehicle following us. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, and and on launch day, for example, when we all came out, there's a there's a Huey helicopter or whatever it's called with dudes hanging out on the side with submachine guns. Oh my God! And I'm thinking, whoa! Wow. And then we get we get in our vehicles and we drive over to the entrance, the south side of uh, Cape Canaveral, and we get to the uh, Air Force gate where you have to show ID and stuff. And there's like a hundred motorcycles, and. And this was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I'm driving. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're told to pause and we're paused in line, right? And all of a sudden you hear, and every one of those motorcycles came on at the same time. And they peeled out and created this huge escort line. I mean, it was incredible. Oh, that's neat. But being a family escort for them obviously was what turned out to be way more difficult than I thought. Yeah. Um, we were with the kids a couple nights before launch. I remember pushing Elon Ramon's little girl in a swing at the playground and helping her down the slide. And, you know, you do everything. You do whatever's needed to help their family. You buy them donuts. You carry their luggage. You, 
you babysit their kids, you, you do whatever. And then when you get on launch day, you're with them and then there's some nerves, right? Mm. Um, and, and this is just, you only had challenger to base it on, right? So everybody worries mm. about challenger. So here are these Columbia families on top of the roof of the launch control center with an astronaut named Clay Anderson that really has nothing to do with their family, except that Rick husband chose me. And, and he chose me, I believe, because I'm a man of faith like he is or he was. And that his family knew me and knew who I was, what I represented, and that's why I was there. And so to stand on the rooftop with those families and watch them clench their fists yeah, and pray yeah. and cry uh, was incredibly emotional. But once they got past the challenger point, the main engine throttle up, they were off to space and everybody relaxed. It's, it's over. The hard part's over. Right. Everything else is gravy. Well, that's where we made the, the tragic mistake, right? Yeah. Because yeah. The, of the foam that broke off and put a hole in their wing. And I was yeah. there for entry. We had no idea. How, that, how did uh, how did you handle that? For those of you who, who may not remember, the Space Shuttle Columbia burned up on re-entry uh, back into the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and there were obviously no survivors um, from the shuttle. I, I really can't imagine. Were, were you with the family as they were coming back into re-entry? And can't imagine how you handled that, Clay. Yeah, the, my first book, The Ordinary Spaceman, has an entire chapter called Hail Columbia devoted to the to that day. Uh, so if people want to learn more, they can. But I, yeah, I was, so we woke up that morning and um, I was at a Dunkin' Donuts going to purchase some breakfast for people. And I ran into Laurel Clark's husband. We talked and we talked about how successful the mission had been, how everything had gone just perfectly and how he was so looking forward to his son, Ian and John and the dad, you know, seeing Laurel again. So I go back to the hotel or the condo, we load them all up and we're driving toward the landing strip and we drive by the famous tree with the eagle, bald eagle nest. Yeah, and at the, okay. At the top of that nest, if you see the mother eagle, it's a good omen for the day. Well, I had Willie McCool's wife and I had Casey's husband and I had Dave Brown's brother. Um, and the first thing uh, Willie's wife said was the weather, right? The weather. And I said, hey, the weather looks bad now here, but they just gave a go for the deorbit burn, which means they would never tell you to, to leave orbit if they thought the weather was going to be bad at your landing site. So that's okay. a good sign. The weather's going to clear, the fog will lift, the wind comes up and blows it away, the sunshine burns it off. All that's going to be good. Well, then we drove by the tree and she didn't see the eagle. And that was concerning to her. Well, you know, I said, hey, <laughs> that it's just it's just something it, it has nothing to do with anything it's just one of those little wives tale kind of things mm -hmm. and I don't remember how I, exactly how I handled it but I tried to calm everybody down and say hey the weather's good we're on our way to the landing site everything's going to be fine but then we get to the landing site and it's a perfect day it's beautiful in February in Florida and and we're on the side of a where the bleachers are for all the family members, right? And then there's a snow fence that separates us from the other bleacher set where the VIPs, the congressmen, the senators, the, you know, whoever's there. The kids are playing, throwing Frisbees. There's a huge clock that's counting down to landing. There's, you're hearing the conversations between the mission control and the shuttle crew. And 
we're wandering around just talking to people and being ready and we're all in our flight seats well i'm talking to laurel clark's sister with steve Lindsay, a veteran shuttle commander and as we're talking we're watching the clock which is just ticking down and we're listening and we hear these you know columbia comm check columbia comm check and we're thinking well that's not normal and we're trained oh. to know and we're trained to hear and and understand and and we know we can learn things from listening to the conversation and uh you know charlie hobos the capcom and he says columbia please repeat your last and then they go switch to uhf and say uhf com check well if you go from the vhf the high frequency to to ultra high frequency then then something's wrong but we thought okay the earth's atmosphere creates this big cloud of ionized gas around the shuttle and they call radicom and you know lots of things right yeah well I looked over toward the snow fence and there was a security guard and she had on her gray slacks and her white button down shirt and her navy blue jacket and one of those big old walkie talkies, right? And she puts sure. it to her ear and I'm looking at her and I don't know why I looked at her, but her face goes totally white. I just watched her face just go white. Oh my. And and I thought, uh oh. And then Steve Lindsay said to me, get ready. That's all he said. And I knew what he meant and i had this nasty feeling in the pit of my stomach you did you did you kind of knew what that meant yes and then the clock ticks past <laughs> zero right and you and we're all waiting for the two boom, boom sonic booms from the shuttle nose uh and then the wake behind the shuttle make those two sonic booms we we're waiting for that we didn't hear it the clock ticks past zero and and every all the families are in the stands what where are they where are they aren't they supposed to be here yeah I, then I got the word to get them all in the car. And so we, I grabbed my families. Come on, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And, and of course, you, you got to be stupid to not know something's gone wrong. And we, we piled my family in the car. And, and Dave Brown's brother, Doug, he just starts to ramble. He just starts to talk. And he says, you know, Dave told me this could happen. Dave told me. He warned me. Something, I said, Doug, stop. We can't we don't know what happened so i and i reached to the radio and i turned it off just by i don't yeah. know why but my heart and brain said turn it off and it's a good thing i did because you know immediately the national media and everybody's saying that columbia has been destroyed over texas and so we make this long drive back to oh. the crew quarters with three spouses of the or three family members of the crew who don't know what's going on. They were supposed to be hugging and kissing their loved ones. And now we're driving back in silence. Uh, we get to crew quarters and we bring them up to the big conference room where all around the room is memorabilia that their loved ones have been signing over days before launch, right? Because they're going to be yeah. given to people. And, and so we put them all in this conference room and, and we don't know anything. We don't know what's going on. So I finally decide I'm walking down to the office where the, big dog astronauts reside and and i said what's going on and and i heard bob cabana who was the head of the astronaut office tell jerry ross who ran crew quarters at the kennedy space center he said there is no hope we have to tell them there is no hope oh my, boy you talk about wow. a feeling in your gut and so wow. i'm looking and listening to this and he says clay get them in the all in the conference room so i look, go back down and everybody's there and I watch Cabana walk down the hall slowly and he's a Marine. He walks into the room and he clicks his heels together and he stands at attention like a Marine and he puts his hands to his side 
And he said, there's no hope. Oh my God. Then the screams and the sobs and the wailing, it was the toughest day of my life. And, And I left, walked out of the room and got behind the door and squatted down so I could call my wife and tell her, Hey, I'm okay, but I'll call you back. Something's wrong. And then I called my mom and I told her the same thing. And I said, call Susan. Um, you know, she'll keep you informed. And then my life changed, right? I have to, I have to go to Willie McCool's room and I have to gather up his bags that he packed because you pre-pack bags. So if you land overseas in Africa, you have a bag there. If you, if you're right. in, in on California, you have a bag there. So I'm gathering all their stuff and then the family start coming in and they're, then they're sitting on their beds and, and they're crying and it's, it's just, yeah. uh, yeah it was tough yeah well god bless you um for being there for those families i i just can't imagine uh what that would have been like um no easy transition from that but uh we're getting closer and closer to the end of my time with mr anderson but i do have a couple other places we would like to go you did some interesting things while you were in space tell me about phone calls from space and famous cities from nebraska <laughs> <laughs> yeah what uh being the only first and only astronaut from nebraska phone calls in space were were fun in that you could call anyone given that the satellite configuration was good uh we had a headset and a microphone and a software program that converted the whatever i was saying in space it would drive it to the tedra satellites thirty-three thousand miles up and then back down to earth and then it would hit a cell cell phone. So I had a list of people to call. I called people every day when we had an opportunity. I, I called Clyde Sackleman at Hastings College. I called my wife every day. I called my brothers. I called my friends in Houston and across the state. And I even called, tried to call uh, some famous uh, political figures in Nebraska, like Dave Heineman, like uh, yeah. Mike Johans, like Chuck Hagel which got me in a lot of trouble actually at first, oh. but because uh, they didn't understand my intent. My intent was to say, hey, I'm proud to be Nebraska's only astronaut and I'm in space and I just wanted to call and say hi. And of course I did that with Hagel because he had called me before launch yeah. to wish me good luck, right? So I decided I should call him and I did. And of course, um, after the call, he has a press conference and he tells everybody that the astronaut from Nebraska called. So then I thought I better call everybody else. <laughs> right. I was actually a news reporter at KLIN in Lincoln during Mr. Hagel's time. And believe it or not, I remember that press conference uh, (laughs) where we were recovering uh, that he said he got a phone call uh, from space from Nebraska's only uh, astronaut. But uh, I I got a kick out of famous cities from Nebraska. I I thought that was neat. (laughs) Well, yeah, the, the mission control team they didn't have the same, they didn't get the same kick out of it that you did. Uh, so every day when I was prepping for my, uh, trip to space, Nebraska is hugely important to me. Um, and all the people here are hugely important to me. So I grabbed a census and it had all the cities, every single town and city in Nebraska. And I put them in a Excel spreadsheet that would go in my crew notebook and it was alphabetically listed. And I took it to space with me. And every day, I would call down at the end of the day, hey, Houston, this is Clay on Space to Ground 2. It's time for famous cities from Nebraska. And I would read (laughs) off at random five or six different cities. And the idea was that 
if people people can go and get the recordings of the MCC transmissions. So if teachers or or politicians or chamber of commerce folks wanted to go find it, they could get the day that Clay called down uh, Amherst or Alliance or Gretna or Memorial Stadium on Saturday, by the way. Uh, I did every city, every city from Nebraska. I still have my crew notebook. I have every date that I called down. I would check it off and write the date uh, so that I made sure I covered every single one. And of course, you know, MCC got pretty tired of it pretty fast. And I actually got chastised by management when I came home about this famous cities from Nebraska thing. And I said, you guys, don't you get it? I'm the only astronaut ever to leave the state of Nebraska. And, and it's important to me. It's hugely important to me. And all I'm trying to do is acknowledge the people that made me the person that I am and that helped me achieve this dream. And you're going to give me crap because I called down five cities every night. This is stupid. But of course, that wow. enacted me with management to a great extent. <laughs> um, you mentioned you're you're proud to be from Nebraska. And I can tell you right now, Nebraskans are extremely proud of you. And there's no question about it. Thank you. In fact, you know... You can be looked at as a hero uh, to to a lot of people around here. Did you have a hero? Yeah, my dad. Your dad. Um, you know, I, I had other heroes, right? Like, I love Batman and Superman, <laughs> but they're yeah. imaginary. Um, I thought a lot of Tom Osborne. And, and one of my dreams in life was to meet T.O., which I've met him and I've become friends with him. And, and I'm hugely honored by that by that man's presence, by that man's work ethic, by that man's accomplishments, by that man and what he represents in the state of Nebraska, his faith, uh, his success, his leadership. Um, you know, so those two men, my dad, I mean, I'm, I'm a kid, I'm a boy, I love my dad. He wasn't perfect by any means, but, but he, was, he was an impressive individual. He was a giver. Uh, he returned to his community greatly. Uh, he, he worked hard and had not much, uh, but he sacrificed for his family. And so he was my main hero. And I would say Dr. Teo was right there in second place. And, and I'll match those two with anybody's set of heroes. I tell you what, uh, you get no argument from me right there. And I've never met your father, but uh, I'm sure he was a great man. And and Dr. Tom has been a hero to a lot of people around here. You are back in Nebraska now. Tell me about this opportunity to take over at SAC Museum. And I mean, it's like a fairy tale thing in a way. It's like the the astronaut from Nebraska gets to come back to his hometown and and take care of, like I said, one of my favorite places uh, in Nebraska to visit the SAC Museum. Well, that job was not on my radar six or eight months ago. I was a board member at the museum or have been a board member for over three years. So I was familiar with what was going on and I was familiar with Jeff Cannon, the, the current president and CEO. And it would turn out, unbeknownst to me, uh, that Mr. Cannon uh, had some medical issues, some serious medical issues that he was going to need to take care of. Uh, so much so that in an April board or he, that he resigned this past April. Uh, but I didn't know he was sick, um, but some people approached me, including uh, some board members that said, would you consider taking over this museum? And I said, well, I'm not pushing anybody out of the chair. I, I know there's a, a, a great leader there now and, and I'm not putting, no, 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 we'll take care of all that. Well, see, they obviously knew he was sick. Right. I didn't right. know that. And so, as the story would move forward and Mr. Cannon would resign from the board and tell us why, 
then it all became clear to me. And then it, then it became an, uh, my wife and I talking and praying and considering prayerfully what, what it meant. Uh, but as I looked at this and I said, you know, that museum is built three miles from where I grew up. Uh, the hills that it sits on, I used to run around with and play with my buddies. Um, the doors of that museum opened in 1998 in May, uh, one month before NASA called and told me that I had been selected as Nebraska's first and unfortunately only astronaut. Uh, my son Cole and his wife Mary-Kate uh, both live in Omaha now and Mary-Kate's uh, becoming a doctor at the Med Center and Cole works uh, for Thrasher Support Works. Uh, my uncle Jim is running for mayor of Ashland. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, hey, vote for my uncle. Um, my brother and his family, uh, his three daughters and, and all their grandkids are living in Omaha and he works at the Med Center. My sister and her husband, Lori and Phil, they live in Aurora, Nebraska. And yeah. so when this came, it was a difficult decision in that I sat there and I said, you know, I don't, I've never run a museum. Uh, do I have what it takes? And then I got to thinking, well, you know what? I didn't really know much about being an astronaut and that turned out pretty good. Um, <laughs> and after yeah. I got the first, the first meeting where they, they said, we want you to do this job. Uh, my wife and I went home, we went to our church that Sunday and the pastor stands up there in his sermon. He says, God does not call the equipped. God equips those he calls. And my wife elbowed me in the side and she looked at me <laughs> and smiled and it became a God thing for us. And so uh, I believe in Nebraska. I believe in Ashland. I believe in the people who raised me to become the man I am today. And I believe that I'm the right guy at the right time to lead this museum, which will be 25 years old next year into the next 25 years. And to do that, we have to build on the history of the Strategic Air Command, but we have to tie that history and the innovations that resulted from being uh, the home of, of SAC and STRATCOM and CYBERCOM and all that. We have to take that and tie it to the future and space and NASA. And that's my charter is to create that vision and lead us forward into the future and, and bring that museum from from good to great, because I want the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum to be the gem of the Midwest. And so that's what I, the task I've been given. That's the task I've accepted. Uh, God's on my shoulder. Yeah. I'm gonna need a lot of help from all the people in Omaha and Lincoln and the surrounding Nebraska areas and Iowa and South Dakota and Kansas in Colorado. You know, it, this is not just Ashland and me. This is the Midwest. For that museum to be in my hometown, whose doors opened the same year I got picked to be an astronaut, you, you can't make that stuff up. Right. And right. for me to be able to come home and give back, that's what I'm all about. Well, we're so glad you did. And you do motivational speaking, I know. You're an author. I didn't get a chance to get to that, including a children's book, including your memoir. Uh, if people want to know more about Clayton Anderson, get in touch with Clayton Anderson in some way, maybe to come and speak to their group, which mm -hmm. I can't imagine why someone wouldn't have you come speak <laughs> to a group. How does that happen, Clay? 
So the easiest way is to Google Astro Clay on the internet. You'll find my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram, my tw TikTok, all that stuff. But if you go to astroclay.com, there's all sorts of information there. If you want me to speak, if you want to purchase books, autograph pictures, merchandise, you know, that's the easiest way. Astroclay.com. Uh, you can do a, there's a tab that will allow you to contact my agents in New York that schedule me to speak. Um, and do all that sort of thing. I do have a new children's book coming out in August of 2023 called So You Want to Be an Astronaut. And oh, I'm very excited about that. That'll be my third children's book, uh, five books total. Uh, we do sell those books at the gift shop in the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum. So come on out and visit. And if, if I'm around, they'll sell you a book and I'll come out and autograph it for you. So, and, and that's the cool thing, right? What museum can you go to today and walk in the door and have a shot at shaking the hand and shooting the breeze with an astronaut. Well, I think the only one in America is the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum. So yeah, uh, come on out and visit us, uh, become members. Uh, we have a new exhibit opening today um, called The Things We Keep. Why do we hang on to stuff? There are camps for kids. There are uh, overnights. There's There are tons of things to do now, but I want to find more cool things and more interactive things uh, for young people and adults alike. So that's my charter. But again, I need the help of all the people around me and I look forward to meeting every single one of them. I feel like we could keep going for another hour and maybe down the road we'll get another chance to cover some of the stuff that heck I didn't even get a chance to get to. Thank you so much for taking time to do this, uh, Clayton. I, again, it's just been a real honor and good luck with everything that's going on uh, at the SAC Museum. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you, sir, and I'd be more than happy to come on again when you need me. I, I, I think we're just gonna have to do that. Uh, <laughs> that's Clayton Anderson. Stop by and see him at the SAC Museum in Asheville, Nebraska.